Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by veteran journalist Ching Chong, who was 18 years old at the time of the Hong Kong riots in 1967. They broke out at a plastic flower factory in San Pokong during the governorship of David Trench. It was a mix of the Cultural Revolution spilling into Hong Kong and genuine grievances about appalling working conditions, a lack of proper housing and access to education for children. The riots would result in a number of deaths, but the fear that Mao Zedong would use it as an opportunity to come across the border never materialised. But it did result in some fundamental changes in Hong Kong as the British colonial government was forced to listen to the people. This is how one news organisation reported events. Week-long street demonstrations, whipped up by pro-communist mobs, take British government house as their target. Posters demand the governor's resignation. Thousands of Chinese shouting Maoist slogans urge an end to British rule in the Crown Colony. The inevitable result, violence. The mobs battle police, throwing stones, bottles, anything. Both rioters and police were injured. The retaliation was swift and effective. Tear gas and riot guns loaded with wooden bullets dispersed the crowd. More than 400 arrested in the seven-day reign of terror and anarchy. Most of the hoodlums were youths. They tore up a Union Jack, smashed windows, and overturned a car, setting it on fire. A British delegation is probing the current crisis. Veteran Hong Kong journalist Ching Chong, you were 18 years old at the time when the riots broke out in 1967. You were also in the fourth form at St Paul's College. What do you remember of that time initially? Was there a sense of excitement, a sense of danger? Well, uh, initially, a lot of people have deep sympathy for the workers because in my times, the Hong Kong society is not that affluent and people virtually are poverty-stricken, I would say. And at that time, the colonial rule implies a lot of disparity between the Westerners and the Chinese, and also a lot of what we call class contradiction, which means that the conflict between the virtuous class and the working class are extremely acute. And all these turned Hong Kong, in fact, into a powder cat by the mid-1960s. So when the riot uh, first uh, erupted, a lot of people have uh, sympathy for the workers. But soon the riot morphed into urban terrorism, with the rioters uh, planting genuine or fake bombs all over the places. And... Among the 8,000 bombs, 1,200 were real, killing more than 15 people, including a pair of young sisters and brothers. Also, the movement turned ugly when the rioters tried to publish a list of targets for assassination. So was this uh, a movement that was, you know, people carrying little red books? Was this, uh, you know, an overflow from communist China? Uh, Was this an anti-British colonial movement or a bit of both? First of all, from the very beginning, this is a purely labour dispute. Just local workers fighting for their rights uh, to work, for better uh, wages, etc. But the problem is that the local communist party make use of it 
and turn it into a political movement by importing the Cultural Revolution from China. And in fact, the 1967 riot was dubbed rightly as the Hong Kong style of the Cultural Revolution. The local communist people tried to import it from China. And along with these uh, political slogans, they also imported the way of struggle, which means uh, urban terrorism at, at that time. David Trench was the governor of Hong Kong at the time. I'll be playing parts of his address to the people throughout the programme. He was due to go on leave and, in fact, doesn't allow events to change his mind too much, only putting off his trip by a few days. Good evening. Before I leave with my family on my trip to England, I thought you might like me to speak to you directly once again about recent events and about the present position here in Hong Kong. Well, first of all, as you all know, until last night, things for the last fortnight or so have been pretty quiet again in the city generally. There were occasional incidents in that period, but generally speaking, the whole situation had greatly stabilised. In fact, I could really have followed my original intention which I announced some months ago before all this happened and started my trip last Friday week. However, I thought you would want me to stay on for a little longer at that time and so I asked the Commonwealth Secretary to let me put off my departure for a week or so. Last night, unfortunately, a violent incident, which was fairly quickly cleared up, occurred in Kowloon and a stoppage has been attempted in a half dozen or so industries this morning. We must be careful to keep this fresh attempt to disrupt our lives in proportion. It has been a major effort to organise this stoppage and workers have only been persuaded to stop work not by gaining their goodwill but by a combination of brutal intimidation and the expenditure of very large sums of money, much of it obtained, as we all know, by most questionable means. You were 18. Did you see these cardboard boxes on the tram tracks, on the streets? I mean, was there a general daily sense of fear? Of course. When the bombs are planted, then the police will call in to try to demolish it. And when they try to demolish the bombs, all the traffic has to stop and the streets are condoned off. And me personally, I'm extremely indignant when the young sister and brother were brushed to death because that was the place where I used to take my younger sister almost on a daily basis to her school. We have to pass through that road every day. And I mean, if touch wood, it might it could be me and my sister that was bombed. So that remained a very deep mark in me. Everything turns turned ugly. And in fact, we have a sense of relief when we saw from our balcony that the Hong Kong police were slipping down from helicopters to one of the buildings that was the headquarters of the leftist rioters. The sense of relief came immediately. We know that the government is trying to take tough actions against the rioters. How much of a watershed do you think that it was? I mean, you had prior to 1967 uh, and continuing on into the late 60s, you had a 
tens of thousands of people living in the equivalent of shanty towns on the hills. Uh, there was limited opportunities for children to have education. Now, the, do you feel that the riots was a watershed, that, that um, there were then social changes that came into Hong Kong and the British government, though the British colonial government had to listen? Well, I think that there's two sides to this watershed uh, implication. On the one hand, the rioters or the leftists become marginalized and they no longer play an in, a significant part in the society of Hong Kong. Prior to the riot, I would say the leftists in Hong Kong represent an up-and-coming uh, force that is very much respected by the people in Hong Kong. To be fair, I, I must admit that. But after the riots, they were simply marginalized by the society. The mainstream society didn't endorse this kind of um, urban terrorism. So s since then, the rioters themselves suffer a very big defeat. This is one watershed in one sense. On the other hand, the British government in Hong Kong, I think they have undergone some soul-searching uh, reflection, uh, trying to find out the root cause of this uh, riot. And although until now we have not seen any uh, declassified documents showing that they have done this soul-searching uh, reflection. Even but, after 50 years? Even after 50 years. But from what they have done after the riots, we can safely presume that they have done really deep soul-searching reflections. Uh, how can we tell? Because the government has uh, adopted a lot of reform measures that, that try to alleviate the grievances of people prior to the uh, riot. So in terms example, of housing or...? No, uh, let me classified in, in, in three broad areas. Now, one of the most uh, important root cause is this uh, ethnic uh, discrimination. Since after the riot, the government deliberately take out the word colonial in the establishment called the colonial secretary and turn it into chief secretary. So the post itself shows some recognition that colonialism has to be removed, okay? And then they try to co-op uh, Chinese brilliant students from the University of Hong Kong to take up position up to the AO grade. Uh, before the riot... So administrative officer? Yeah, the AO means administrative officers. Before the riot, all these are British uh, prerogatives. And then they also uh, try to... Uh, make Chinese as an official language. This type of reform shows that they want to get rid of ethnic differences. And then comes the social reform, which we saw this massive house-building program by the government, the free education for the kids, and then we have all this labor reform, especially labor reform. That is a, a very major reform after the riot. Uh, these are the social reforms. And then we also see that the government tried to uh, get rid of the, this problem, of this contradiction between the rule and the rulers. For example, they adopt this ICAC thing to wipe out corruption, which is a major headache of these pre-riot times. And then they also start a policy which was described by scholars called the administrative absorption of politics. Now, this is a very 
peculiar term, but it it was a term coined by the former uh, chancellor of the Chinese University of Hong Kong, meaning that the government would try to co-opt major opponents in society into the administration. This is what he called the administrative absorption of political rivalries. So in that case, it means that the the, the all the major different political differences could be absorbed and resolved within the administration. So on hindsight, if you uh, read all these measures, it obviously shows that the government has done some really soul-searching reflection on what caused the riot. Pathé News, which for decades covered many news events, including landslides and typhoons in Hong Kong, was a little blasé when it came to the riots. This report is about the China-Hong Kong border, with only passing reference to the turbulent times. Hong Kong, a tourist paradise for duty-free shoppers. The international airport is a busy place. In fact, all Hong Kong is busy. Huge apartments house some of the population, but many live on junks and sandpans in the harbour itself. More than 4 million people live here, 99% of them Chinese. And China, communist China, lies only a few miles away just across the border. On one side, a British colony. On the other, Red China. It's on this border that ten policemen have been killed in the past few days in clashes with communist mobs. A police outpost on the border. The clashes of the past few days have been isolated instances, for Hong Kong has a reputation as one of the world's most peaceful and law-abiding countries. And a drive through the new territories to look into communist China has always been a favourite tourist attraction. There's the border, a fence running along the edge of a river. Beyond it, some chun in communist China. East and West really meet right here. Now, where did it all start? I mean, this weekend marks the anniversary. There was a, you know, basically trade unionists getting going at this plastic flower factory in San Po Kong, but there were also trade union kind of protests at other uh, firms as well. It was just normal labour dispute between industrialists and its workers. And in the early 1960s, these are commonplace things in Hong Kong because the uh, wages are low, uh, working hours are long, and there's nothing of all this as uh, labor insurance scheme for the working class. And therefore, life of the working class is really, really tough. I can give you a very simple example. For example, the the tram drivers. The tram drivers didn't have any uh, meal hours. They have to take their meal while driving their tram. And they have to keep on standing the whole eight hours without uh, even a place to rest. And now... After the riot, you can see that the tram has a platform attached to the drivers where the driver could take a rest while driving, you see. So these are minor things, but, but, but for these minor things, you can see that before the riots, the working class are really tough. And there were a number of these kind of disputes. So labor disputes in the early 1960s is just a very commonplace thing, except that these 
And I, I, what I want to stress is that before this Sun Pogong Plastic Flower Plan, the leftist organization in Hong Kong, the left-wing people, the com- local communists, has already trying to get hold of some other minor disputes to try to have their hands on. For example, there was a, a dispute involving a major Western liner. The captain were asked not to solve a labor problem, but to come out and recite Mao's quotation. So, I mean, this is obviously irrelevant, totally irrelevant to the labor dispute. But that was what the Chinese communists, the local Chinese communists are trying to do. They want to project the cultural revolution into Hong Kong. But all that previous disputes were minor, comparatively speaking, and there's little chance for them to blow it up. But not the Sun Pukong one. The Sun Pukong one is really uh, a big one and involving uh, thousands of workers. And, and, and therefore, it gives the leftists a, a chance to blow it up. In spite of all this, no essential service has ceased to operate, and some of the services, which were particular targets for attack, are proving able to run almost normally. Furthermore, over by far the greatest part of our economy, all goes on as usual. I'm afraid we must accept irritations of this kind for a time and learn to withstand them by mutual cooperation and an acceptance of such of the difficulties caused us as we cannot overcome by our own ingenuity. You can be sure that everything possible is being done by government and the firms concerned to minimize these difficulties. But they cannot, of course, be immediately and entirely overcome. On the more tragic side of these events, uh, a number of people died, including, as you mentioned, the two children. There were also five policemen who also lost their lives. Um, there were the, the, this sense of fear with these bombs or perhaps pretend bombs some of the time in these cardboard boxes, but you never really knew. But uh, I also um, have been entertained a little bit by some aspects of the history of that time in the sense that the Bank of China building used to blast communist rhetoric but I understand that in response, uh, the British colonial government or the, the armed forces actually would, would uh, blast back Cantonese opera. Or um, I've even heard that uh, it was sometimes pop music. Yes, that was at the height of this riot. And the Bank of China virtually became the headquarters and command centre of the rioting uh, masses. They broadcast all these revolutionary red songs, so-called, the red songs. And then the GIS, Government Information Service, which is uh, located just a, a few hundred yards away from the Bank of China in Beaconsfield uh, House, they try to broadcast Chinese opera and classical music, try to dampen the atmosphere there. That was a very... Uh, interesting propaganda warfare. Must have been a bit difficult working there in the office. (laughs) Yes. Three straight days of street rioting in the crowded Kowloon Peninsula of Hong Kong bring out scores of police. Striking artificial flower workers demanding more money sparked the trouble. Almost 300 youths arrested in three days of protests. Some wore Mao Zedong buttons and spouted slogans. Police said the rioters' sole aim seemed to be an attack on any and all authority. Many British said the riots were justified. 
blaming 19th century attitudes of factory owners. Labor demands are being discussed. There are a number of reasons, nevertheless, most of them already well known to you, why I feel that, having made all the arrangements, this is still the right time for me to take my trip and, at the same time, take the opportunity to consult again with Her Majesty's Government in London. After all, the problems we have been facing are not simply Hong Kong's problems alone. But first, at this point, I do want to assure you that I am, of course, completely confident about leaving you with Mr. Gass, who will be acting in my place while I am away and who has been closely concerned with all that has gone on throughout all these difficult days. I only ask you to give him the same magnificent support that you have given me, support from which not only I, but indeed all those advising and assisting me have drawn so much inspiration. When I look back at the events of the last two months, I must say I do get the feeling, amongst other sentiments of course, that it has all been so unnecessary. We here in Hong Kong have lived in reasonable harmony and amity with our great neighbor for some 17 or more years now. And, as I have said before, we have never at any time, now or in the past, had any desire to disturb that relationship. Nevertheless, to my profound sorrow and regret, it has been disturbed, and the most extravagant language and behavior has been and is being employed against us. Looking back at 1967, I mean, it was obviously these historic events were a, a mixture of things coming together. 2014, of course, we had um, the Occupy protests here in Hong Kong. People also talk now about the divisions in Hong Kong society. Do you feel that uh, the government now can learn anything from what occurred in 1967? Now, first of all, I don't... Uh, think it is appropriate to compare the Occupy movement to the riots for one very simple reason. The riots uh, in '67 is an attempt to import the Cultural Revolution into Hong Kong. And as you know, the Cultural Revolution has bring a lot of uh, damages to the country, a lot of human rights atrocities and killing of the innocent people. This is never the purpose of Occupy movement. From the very beginning, the two should not be compared. I would, I would say it would be very unfair to compare the OC students to those rioters 50 years ago. The purpose that started the movement is different, and there was no people masterminding the movement behind. Okay, you can say the the OC fleet, Benny Tai, Chen uh, Jinman, and Zhu Yuming, they might be the organizer, but they organize the movement in their own capacity. They don't represent a particular political force. Unlike the riot 50 years ago, it was completely organized and masterminded by the local chapter of the Chinese Communist Party. And they got the full support of the central government at that time. Whereas the Occupy movement didn't enjoy this kind of uh, uh, support. And I think the purpose are also very different. I think it would be wrong to compare OC with the riot 50 years ago. 
you had the Red Guard, you had these you know, young students fired up in 1967, waving Mao's Little Red Book. This wasn't just in Hong Kong, but also in Macau. I mean, how big was the threat that uh, communist China would just come into Hong Kong? No one knows. Of course, we're concerned because lots of people in Hong Kong are in fact those fleeing communism from China, you see. Hong Kong, indigenous population of Hong Kong is less than about, less than a million uh, before 1949, so they, they, they fled to Hong Kong and they want to have a, a stable life here. Therefore, they are very concerned that the communists would take over Hong Kong uh, 50 years ago. No one knows exactly uh, whether Beijing would like to take over Hong Kong. Not until the incident of the British charged affairs in Beijing, when the Red Guards set fire on the British uh, rap office and causing a big international uh, issue, Zhou Enlai went to ask Mao Zedong if, she, if he had uh, decided to claim Hong Kong back at that time. Mao said no, leave Hong Kong as it is. And then after getting Mao's uh, message, Zhou Enlai immediately ordered a stop to this uh, riot. So before that, nobody really knows what's the real intention of this riot. Now, as a journalist, looking back, I mean, one of the most, along with these two young children who died aged eight and two, one of the most horrific uh, situations, I think, of of the riots was, in fact, a commercial radio host who, along with his cousin, was was burnt alive. Now, why did they go for the journalists? Well, because uh, Mr. Lamban at that time was the most uh, outspoken journalist against this uh, riot. Therefore, the leftists, the communists, target him as the main culprit for assassination. In fact, before the assassination of Lamban, they have already put out a list uh, of targets for assassination. It is, of course, difficult for us, brought up to value, reason and fairness, and to respect the views of others, to understand what makes people speak and act in the way this minority in our midst has done. Deliberately to substitute blind invective for reason and violence for moderation seems such a childish way of using our human energies and talents. However, be that as it may, you will want to know from me whether we can, in time, look forward to a return to complete normality. I most sincerely hope so enough damage has been done to Hong Kong in recent weeks already. There will be further incidents from time to time. Indeed, I am afraid it is possible there may be scattered irritations for quite a long time, as last night's events indicate. But we have demonstrated our determination and our ability to deal with this kind of thing, and I am quite certain we can continue to do so. One last word. A minority particularly a very small minority, however determined, cannot impose its will on the great majority of the people unless the majority let it. We in Hong Kong, therefore, must remain on our guard. We must be ready to stand up to any threats or pressures put on us, 
either individually or as a community. And we must not, above all, allow any fears, public or private, to get the better of us. If we keep up our courage and help others to do the same, we need not be too concerned about the activities of the minority here. I shall be thinking of you all while I am away, as of course you know. And I hope there will be things that I can accomplish on Hong Kong's behalf during this period also. I shall be returning again in September, and until then, my best wishes go out to each and every one of you. Governor David Trench there before he headed off on leave. My thanks to veteran journalist Ching Chong there with his thoughts and memories of the Hong Kong riots in 1967, so 50 years ago. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. You've been listening to Hong Kong Heritage, of course, uh, produced and presented as usual by Anna Marie Evans on your station, RTHK Radio 3. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Sometimes it isn't safe to go to the shoreline. Typhoons far from shore can cause swells, which will often cause huge waves when approaching the coast. The weather and the sea may look nice and calm, but your life may already be under threat. Stay tuned to the Hong Kong Observatory's forecast and warning messages on swells. Keep away from the shore and stop all water activities. You can also visit the observatory's website, hko.gov.hk, for more information. We continue with our Sunday reading with more from the Russian writer Tefi, who continues her flight to Ukraine in the early 1900s. But arrival in Odessa only means further movement down the map. In Memories from Moscow to the Black Sea. So began our days in Odessa. The man in charge of Odessa was the young, grey-eyed General Grishin Almazov. And even he seemed a little unsure how he had come to be the city's military governor. Grishin Almazov was energetic, cheerful and strong. He flaunted his buoyant energy. He wanted everyone to know about it. He loved literature and theatre and there were rumours that he had once been an actor. One day, he even called on me and kindly offered me accommodation at the Hotel London. And so I got a wonderful room. Grishin Almazov liked pomp and ceremony. When he visited me in the hotel, he always left an entourage in the corridor and two guards at the main entrance. As the Bolsheviks drew nearer, people were little by little being robbed of all they owned. Criminal gangs had taken over the abandoned quarries that formed entire catacombs under the city. Grishin Almazov tried to negotiate with one of the ringleaders, the notorious Mishka, the Japanese. This evidently achieved little, 
From then on, Grishin was unable to drive around town at anything less than full speed, since he had been promised a b 